friends, we hope you enjoy this sermon from St. Jude Oak Cliff. And if nobody has told you today that they love you, we do. But more importantly, God does. All right. Like I said, it's going to be bleak if you didn't catch that. So I'm just kidding. Um, a few years ago in 2018, there was a movie called If Beale Street Could Talk. And it was actually an adaptation from a James Baldwin novel by the same title. And I hadn't read the novel so I went to the movie theater not, not really knowing what it was going to be about. I thought it was just going to be a really sweet love story between these two young kids from Harlem, which it is that. But I wish I had read it because by the end of the movie, when you get to the end, it just guts you. You're just like, ugh. I remember walking out of that theater with Alex and our other friend, John, and we were all just like, well, that just ruined our week. And everyone else is walking out. So let me, let me explain to you why. There's these two young people, Tish and Fawny. Tish is the young girl. Fawny is the young man. And they've been best friends their whole lives. Their families are best friends. And like you hope when your families are best friends, they fall in love. And it's so sweet. I mean, their love story is so sweet. But they're two young black kids in Harlem at a time when there's racial tension. And Fawny has a run-in with a white cop. And so the white cop decides he wants to get his pay back. And so he, Fawny is arrested and wrongly accused of an extremely heinous crime. And he's locked up behind bars because of this white cop. And so you see Tish's family and Fawny's family, both of the families going to great lengths to try and clear his name, including uh, Tish's mom flies to a Latin American country to meet with the woman who was harmed in the actual crime, who Fani did not commit, and you know this as the reader and as the audience member, and begs her to come back and clear his name, and she says, no. And you're just, ugh. And so you get back, and he's still in prison, and you're, you're, the last hope is gone of his name being cleared. And it fasts forward, and you see him having a meal with his wife and the son that she was pregnant with when he was thrown behind bars years later, and you're just watching him live his life behind bars, wrongly accused, and the movie ends. And you're like, this was horrible. Why would I do this on a Tuesday? I have to go to work on Wednesday. Like, this is, ugh. You get to the end, and that's the point. That, that's James Baldwin's point, is despite this unbelievable love story, sometimes you don't get a happy ending. And that's the same for Psalm 88. In fact, one commentator in talking about Psalm 88 says, this is probably the darkest portion of Scripture. This psalm right here, smack dab in the middle of our psalms. And so we're going to read it this morning, and we're going to talk about why I would choose the darkest psalm to talk about what it means and how it looks to pray to God in moments of darkness. Because there's something I believe that the darkness can teach us that the light can't. And there's something for us in this gut-wrenching ending, just like there's something to be learned from if Beale Street could talk. So here is Psalm 88. Lord God of my salvation, I cry out before you day and night. May my prayer reach your presence. Listen to my cry. For I've had enough troubles, and my life is near Sheol. I am counted among those going down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, abandoned among the dead. I'm like the slain lying in the grave whom you no longer remember and who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest part of the pit, in the darkest places in the depths. Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with your waves. You have distanced my friends from me, and you have made me repulsive to them. I am shut in and cannot go out. My eyes are worn out from crying 
Lord, I cry out to you all day long, and I spread my hands out before you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do departed spirits rise up to praise you? Will your faithful love be declared in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of oblivion? But I called to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer meets you. Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you hide your face from me? From my youth, I've been suffering in near death. I suffer your horrors and I am desperate. Your wrath sweeps over me. Your terrors destroy me. They surround me like water all day long. They close in on me from every side. You have distanced loved ones and neighbor from me. And darkness is my only friend. This, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for preserving this psalm. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to talk about lament and heartache and what it feels like when you abandon us. Would you allow my words to be beautiful and true and honoring to you, Lord, and would you allow them to nourish and strengthen us for what you're calling us to do, Lord? We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Normally, when you turn to a psalm of lament, which there are many in the book of the Psalter, there's 150 psalms, and about one-third are psalms of lament, and normally they eventually end with some sort of confidence in God's eventual deliverance. It's almost as if, like, when you're lamenting and you're talking to God, it's almost as if the psalmist in those psalms is, is reminding himself as he's processing out loud, oh, yeah, you've rescued me before. Got it. You're going to rescue me. It's almost as if as he's bringing his complaints and his accusations and his fears to God, as they reach God's ears, he's going, oh, oh I remember who I'm talking to, and yet I trust in your deliverance. But not in this psalm. Not in Psalm 88, there is no rescuing from that. It's almost as if our psalmist at the end of this psalm leads to exhaustion, both rhetorical and personal. My dark, darkness is my only friend. It's interesting, our psalmist in, opens his psalm with the only words of hope, Lord, God of my salvation. But given the bleakness of the entire psalm, one commentator thinks it's perhaps irony. Aren't you supposed to be the Savior? <laughs> then why is this happening to me? And they says, you know, maybe these words are meant to be irony thrown back to God. If you take a creative writing class, which I recommend all of you do, you're going to be taught to have words that have impact, that invoke the senses. You want to use the five senses and you want to use strong language. So you don't say, I had a bad day. You say, the wrath of 10,000 sons has poured out upon me, right? Which is overkill. But that's how you do that if you're trying to get emotions. Listen to these words. Troubles. Sheol, which is the place of the dead, the pit, without strength, abandoned, dead, slain, grave, cut off, darkest places, the depths, wrath. And that's just through verse 7. Our psalmist is feeling abandoned and he's evoking strong feelings in his language to God. I want you to notice the shift between verse 9 and verse 10. In verse 9, our psalmist is worn out from crying. We've been there. You know what that's like where you're the salt, you can taste it, and your eyes are burning, and the headache's starting to form, and you're worn out from crying. There's no more tears left. And he says he stands there before God with his palms open, which is to say, I have nothing to offer you. It's a, it's a posture of complete 
surrender before God. That's Psalm 9. And so you expect in verse 10 there to be a switch. This is where normally in a psalm you would go, and yet I trust that you will deliver me. That's what you expect to come in verse 10. But that is not what happens with our psalmist. Instead, between verse 9 and verse 10, when he goes from I have nothing to offer you, verse 10, the intensity actually ratchets up. Our psalmist uses rhetorical questions that he's using to accuse God. And he's invoking, he's trying to provoke God to action. He's invoking God's own character against God. So for our psalmist, now I need you to understand this is in the Old Testament. So this is before the New Testament. So don't be like, well, in Jesus. No, don't go there yet. Allow the psalm to be what it is. All of the questions are presumed no. And so the psalmist is saying to God, you better save me for your sake, because I know who you are. And he's throwing God's character back to God. He says, do you not work wonders for the dead? And the answer is no, you don't work wonders for the dead. So it's almost as if he's saying, then you need to act now, because it's going to be too late if I die. He says, do departed spirits rise up to praise you? No, they don't. And since you're a God who loves praise, you had better act now. Don't you want my praise? Because if I'm gone, you will get no such praise. Will your faithful love be declared in the grave? No. And I will be your witness. Save me and I will witness for you. But if you don't save me, I can't declare your faithful love in the grave. Will your wonders and your justice be known in the darkness? No. So you should do something or else I won't be able to speak of the wonders of your righteousness if I'm dead. Notice the psalmist knows God. He's declaring to God who God is. He's saying, look, I know that you're the God of wonders. I know that you're the God of loyal love. I know that you're the God of faithfulness. I know that you're the God of justice. So be that. Why aren't you doing those things for me? You claim to be this person. So do something. It's as if verses 1 through 9 is the lament of weeping. And in verses 10 through 12, they show some courage and some anger to throw God's character back into God's face. Something Moses has done. And then we transition back into verses 13 through 18, and our, our psalmist is just swallowed up by darkness. He says, listen, the last wave is coming. The last wave is coming, and it ends with, darkness is my only friend. I told Carter, good luck finding a song for that one. He's abandoned, desperate, broken, darkness. I hopped over to Dallas Theological Seminary this week to sit in their library, and that's a bleak place. I don't recommend it. But I was on the second floor just reading through the commentaries, and I just at one point, and I'm just, it's a very scholarly exercise when I'm preparing before I get ready to actually deliver a sermon, and I'm just reading through these commentaries, and I just, I just burst into tears thinking about many of you all. There's a privilege in being a pastor that you know. You know what so many of you all are going through. And I just started to think about many of you all and where you're at. And I just burst into tears. Which you're not supposed to do in seminary. It's supposed to be completely devoid of emotion. (laughs) I just thought, gosh, this psalm feels familiar for some of my friends. There's a knowing in lament when you have experienced the dark night of the soul. Like, there are many of you who read Psalm 88 and you go, yeah, no, I get those words. I get this psalm. I understand these words. I might not be bold enough to say them to God, or I might not be bold enough to say them in front of others to God. But no, I, 
I get this psalm. I know what it's like to beg God to act and to feel his silence. I remember those days. There's a woman named Joan Didion. She writes about her feelings after the sudden loss of her husband after 40 years. And she encapsulates so much of why grief is so isolating. She says, I felt invisible for a period in time, incorporeal, which is to say I had no body. I seem to have crossed over one of those legendary rivers that divide the living from the dead, and I entered in a place in which I could only be seen by those who were themselves recently bereaved. And I thought, that, that is what, part of why grief is so hard, is because you're sitting in Starbucks and you feel like at any moment you could explode into tears or rage and you're looking at everybody else and they're just reading the newest Brene Brown book and you're thinking, we're not having the same Tuesday and you can't actually see me. And this psalm asks us, what do we do when God's silence is so loud and we're begging him to do something look at us and act on our behalf and it seems as if he does and says nothing and we feel so utterly alone in that place what are we supposed to do the answer is of course we lament we lament. Lament is this word that belongs to the Christian tradition, and I'm so glad we have it. Lament is when you turn to God, you express your pain, your accusations, your fears, you cry out to God. And I want to remind you all, lament has always been the language of the people of God. One-third of our psalms. One-third. This is who we are as the people. And so the cry of desperation to God is not the cry of the faithless, it's the cry of the faithful. And this has always been true. This is who the people of God has always been. We have a language for the brokenness of life. The cry of desperation to God is not the cry of the faithless. Lament is always the cry of the faithful. When you, when you read commentaries, sometimes there's just weirdness that'll come up. And one commentator had the audacity to say, this psalm is only in our Bible as an example of what not to do because the faithful are never supposed to despair. I almost threw the book. So I hid it in a different part of the library. I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I should have. How can you miss the beauty of this psalm so badly is what I want to know. When you're steeped in the psalms and writing a commentary, he, he missed it. Because thankfully, another commentator rightly remarks, it's extraordinary that this person keeps praying at all. The psalm is an expression of extraordinary faith. I don't want y'all to miss this. To be in a place where you have cried and cried and cried and you are still in your brokenness and you are still in a place of deep despair and what you do is you grab God's cloak and continue to pull on it and continue to say, look at me. That is something profoundly beautiful. His unanswered prayers lead you to more urgent and vigorous prayer because you have no alternative source for hope. That is not faithlessness. To feel abandoned by God and yet beg him to continue to act on your behalf and to know that you have the kind of faith that says, I can speak to God this way, knowing that any words I've said, any pain expressed, any accusation voice will not sever the relationship, but instead it might just provoke God to look upon me. That is not faithlessness. 
Oh, that we would have that kind of faith. For those who think we should not speak to God this way, I have to ask them, what does it reveal that God would furnish us with this prayer when we are on the brink of despair? When you say, I'm on the brink of despair, where do I go? You don't have to leave here. It's right here. These are holy words that God kept for us. What does that reveal about God and what does that reveal about life? That in this book of prayers, God would say, we need a Psalm 88. I chose this psalm out of all the psalms of lament because it doesn't rescue us. There aren't many. There there are like two that don't end on a high note. And in fact, 89, the one immediately next to it, doesn't end on a high note, but it starts on a high note. So I, I, I just sat here in 88. And it doesn't give us an escape from the pain. It slams the darkness right here up against our nose and forces us to deal with the darkness of the soul in that dark moment in the night. So, this morning, I want us to ask, what can we learn specifically from Psalm 88? The lament with no end. What does God have for us in this psalm specifically? And I just have two things. The first one is this. We have to kill the idolatry of victory that's found in so much Christendom. The first thing that Psalm 88 asks of us is we have to kill the idolatry of victory that's found in much of Christendom. Yes, Christ conquered all. Yes. Yes, we are victorious. In fact, it's my name in the Bible. It's Huper Nikeo, Nika. We are more than conquerors. Yes, darkness will not win in the end. And yes, there are times for those messages. Come on Easter. It'll be great. But Genesis 3, where we rebelled from God and the world broke, demands a Psalm 88. In this world, people die, and people are harmed. Violence is done to God's people, and God can seem so far in those moments. We can cry out day and night for rescue, and it might not come. One-third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. One-third. It means that we should expect that life is hard and that you can feel abandoned by God. Now, is Psalm 88 the last psalm in the book of Psalms? No. No, in fact, the last five psalms are all psalms of praise that start and end with hallelujah. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And when you get gray hair, you will know that life is full of lament and praise. You will learn that. And you will know when you have gray gray hair that this too shall pass. You will know that. But when you get gray hair, you will know that this too will not pass quickly. That the seasons of lament are often longer than we want them to be. Our idolatry of victory means that we often don't give people permission to grieve, to question God, to sit in sackcloth and ash. And yet any good counselor will tell you the only way through grief is through it. You cannot go around it. You can't pep talk yourself out of it. You can't reason or explain it away. If you could pep talk your way out of grief, I would never be sad. You need a pep talk? You call me. Let's go. We got this. Hands in. Aslan on three. Come on. No one will pep talk you out of whatever you Ask my roommates. They get Sunday scaries. I'm like, we got this. And they're like, okay, calm down. But you can't do that through grief, which is why we have to come. We cry. We watch. We wait. We look. We long for Christ. That's what we do. 
and you can cry out to God and you can ask why and you can get no answer and you can cry out to God and you can yell at God and you can cry and you can ask why and you can feel so painfully low and it's so utterly painful. And that is the cost of living in a Genesis 3 world at times and it hurts. But the idolatry of victory causes people who are in that dark night of the soul to wonder either one, did I do something wrong and this is my punishment because all the Christians around me are telling me we're not supposed to suffer or two, they begin to question, is God good? Because isn't it supposed to be victory? All neat little bows tied up? Aren't we supposed to have happy endings? If that's the case, then why is this happening to me? And Psalm 88 says, it's not always the case. It doesn't always work like that. This isn't your fault. And God is good. And one of the greatest mysteries of our life is that we have a good God, and yet we suffer. So to my friends who are hurting today, for the wombs that won't open, for the cure that won't come, for the pain that won't relent, for the person who was supposed to love you, and they harmed you, for the betrayals, for the disappointment, for the moments when God seems so distant. I am so sorry. And I have no answers. The cost of being human in a Genesis, Genesis 3 world is painful. And I don't want you to rush out of your lament. I want you to cry out to God. And I want to be patient with you as you grieve. Because that same God who feels far from you in Psalm 56, it says he collects all your tears in a bottle. And so let them fall. And to my friends who are not in a season of lament, we have work to do. Because we all contribute to the idolatry of victory. I mentioned earlier, one of the most painful parts of grief is that you do feel so alone. I remember just thinking, am I just going to be sad the rest of my life in a particularly hard season of lament? And I remember thinking, I'm not going to have any friends at the end of this because the only reason people like me is because I'm funny. I thought that. Turns out they don't think I'm that funny, so it was good. I learned. I was like, but you feel so alone. And the problem is so many times as Christians, we're well-meaning. We are well-meaning, but we rush to victory. And Psalm 88 demands that we don't move too quickly past the very real pain someone is feeling as they lament and feel abandoned by God. Like, can you imagine someone comes to you and says, I feel like the next wave of God's abandonment is going to crash over my head. And you're like, yeah, but Jesus conquered death, you silly goose. But we do that. We don't, we don't mean to. We don't. But we do it. Instead, we should be willing to draw near and help them not feel so alone. In her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren, she's an amazing writer. I highly recommend the book. It's an entire book on lament. And it's all about her dark night of the soul. And she starts talking about nautical flags and how if humans had nautical flags, it would be helpful. She says this in her book, raised by themselves or in different combinations, the flags mean different things. Nautical being boat, boat flags, yeah. White with a blue cross followed by a flag divided into four color triangles means what is the wind doing? Yellow and red triangles mean man overboard. And they're a combination for races and gales and all that. She has this friend who's, who's into nautical flags because she thinks if we as humans had them, it would be helpful. She says... 
about her friend. Her friend says, I wish we could fly such flags. We humans. We could be ships unto ourselves to communicate our states of balm or damage, our current headings or desires and lacks. And maybe my friend's radio has gone out, but at least he could fly his small, I am suffering on this sunny day flag. And if he did that, then I could raise my, I will take a walk with you and listen flag. We could see each other and understand and act without having to say all the words. Tish goes on, she says, these days with radio and digital communication, satellites and GPS, ships still keep flags on board in case all else fails, but they rarely have to use them. They're a bit like oxygen masks on planes. They're necessary when things go very badly wrong. But if all you have left drifting alone in the middle of the vast ocean is a small square of flapping fabric calling for help, things are about as dire as they can be. Now picture yourself in a boat, lost and afraid, adrift as the sun sets with no way to contact anyone except for the flag you've been given for this moment. And you don't know what else to do, so you raise your flag. It's bright white with a red X. And then you see a ship, distant but drawing near, and it hoists its flags in response. A bright red diamond on a white field, followed by another made of two triangles, yellow and red, and then lastly a white trapezoid marked with a red circle, and I think I have an image of it. This flag combination means I will keep close to you during the night. Think about that. You are in a vast ocean. Everything has gone wrong. You have no hope of saving yourself. You are scared. The sun is setting. And you've got a little flag just flapping in the wind. And suddenly another ship comes. They can't get on your boat and rescue you. They can't make your radio work. They cannot fix what is ailing you. But what they can do is they can raise these flags and say, I'll stay close to you through the night. You do not have to be alone in this vast ocean. Tish says, when she was drifting in her grief, not knowing what else to do, the prayers of the church were like this flag for her, knowing that people were close in the night. We who are not in seasons of lament, what are we to do when our friends cry out Psalm 88? This. We're to keep close in them in the night. We can't rescue them. We have no well-meaning platitudes that'll work. There are no quick fixes. There is no, well, look at the big picture. None of that's going to work. Instead, it's our presence. It's knowing their coffee drink and dropping it off. It's prayers. It's head rubs. It's dinners made. It's tears in your own eyes. And it's staying close to them in their dark night of the soul. Paul wrote, we rejoice with those who rejoice. But after Calvary, after the resurrection, after victory, he still said, though, but we weep with those who weep. We still do this, even in Christ's victory. Psalm 88 teaches us that we have to slay the idolatry of victory. And it gives us language when our words fail. Sometimes pain is so hard, you just don't have words. And so God, in his infinite goodness and kindness, he supplied words for us and many more. And so maybe you're, you don't feel abandoned by God. Maybe you're in a seasonal lament, but you're like, I'm not at Psalm 88. I'm like a little bit degrees back. May I offer to you Psalm 3, Psalm 13, 22, 42, 44. There are many other. A third of the Psalms. Open them. You might hit one. Maybe those are the words that you need. Maybe you need a lament that declares trust because that's where you're at. But my point in all this is wherever you're at, God has supplied words for us to give to him. If you're feeling abandoned by God and wondering why he hasn't acted, 
May I offer you Psalm 88 to say back to him over and over again. Because God not only receives that prayer, he preserved that prayer and he wants that prayer. And so if your pain is so great, you have lost your words. God has provided some for you. You have to look no further. I'll be honest with y'all, I didn't want to preach this psalm. Like, full disclosure, my name literally means victory. You will not find somebody with a bigger idolatry of victory than me. My favorite movie quote of all time is Remember the Titans. And it's after the, the Gary Bertier is in the car wreck, and he's going to be in a wheelchair, and the head coach lost sight of what's most important. This tells you this is not good. And the assistant coach says, hey, maybe we should focus on what's most important. He says, I'm a win. <laughs> I'm a winner. I'm going to win. That's my favorite quote. I say it all the time. When you go to the baseball game and you look at your nieces and nephew and you say, what would be your walk-up song? All I do is win, 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 no matter what. No one. I wear Nike swooshes like every Sunday, guys. No one has a bigger idolatry of victory than me. No one. And then I got knocked on my rear a few years ago. And there's no pep talk. There's no win. There's not enough Nikes in the world. I try. I bought a lot that'll get you through that grief. You sit in it. And you feel loss. And your name doesn't save you. And I'll be honest, like, even right now, after going through all that, I want to end on a beautiful note. Like, I want to be like, but hey, guys, don't forget, Psalm 88 is before the Gospels. Like, I want to rescue us, and yet, that would deny the very real pain some of you are experiencing right now. So I'm not going to do it. I want to, but I'm not. And I know I don't have to, because we're going to do communion after this, and that is a table for those who are in Christ who have victory. So I don't, I don't have to. We can hang in this lament space. So I'm just going to end with this. Christians are weird. We know that, right? Like when we see a Super Bowl winner or an Oscar winner and they give glory to God, we lose our minds. Oh, they're one of us. We won. And that's neat, right? Like that's neat when a Christian does something cool and when they belong to us. But it is just as awesome, if maybe not more awesome, when someone feels darkness closing in all around them and they are still banging on God's door for rescue. That is the kind of faith that's sometimes required of God's people in this world. It's not just when you're on the mountain, it's when you're in the valley. And so if you are hurting and despairing and sad, my encouragement to you is keep lamenting, keep banging on God's door. And for the rest of us, we've got to find a way to stay close to those during the night. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Psalm 88. And I admit it makes me uncomfortable at times. And yet I know, I know that there were seasons in my life when it would have been easy to declare those words. Help us to not be so uncomfortable sitting in the lament when our friends need us to hang in the night. And for my friends who are hurting and despairing, and they feel that you're far. God, I ask that you would draw near to them, answer their prayers, answer their cries, change their situation. Lord, pull them out of this season, because only you can. But for however long it takes, help us to be good at waiting and allow us to keep banging on your door, Lord. 
Lord, we love you, and you are good, and you do good. Bless my friends this morning. We ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.